Good morning, everybody. We didn't introduce, so Pete and I decided throughout the week that um, we just kind of get weird. And so our goal for today is to be less weird. Um, we're weird in different ways. But so today, my attempt to be less weird is I'm going to wear this little microphone. And when I, when I say something, I'm not going to sit down every time I say something, like I'm hiding in my seat. So we're going to stand up here. And that may end up being weird. There's no way to know. I'm just going to stand here awkwardly. Weird. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. It's just, it's a character trait, maybe in the whole family. Sorry. Um, okay, audience participation time. On a scale of one to ten, uh, no, 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 that's too many. One to five. Put my mic up higher. Is that better? Okay, good. All right, scale of one to five. One is you, you've had a laid back, easy peasy week. All right, five is stressed out, time poor, struggling. Shout out where you've been this week. Three, two, five, three. Randall was doing this. We have General Assembly this week. Uh, all right, threes and twos. Anybody? Two? Was that a five? Oh, two, four. You got a four over there. Okay. Oh, hey, y'all, over there. Yeah, okay, so summer may or may not have made much of a difference for that, huh? So we established last week, and hopefully, but let's make a note though, that we're not necessarily talking about work as we're studying through this book together. Work is a good thing. God told Adam and Eve to work in the beginning. Um, but when sin entered, uh, just like everything else, work became distorted and we got busy. And we also assigned meaning to our work and our busyness that was tainted by sin as well. So what we've established, hopefully, last week is that we're talking about the, the kind of busyness that leaves us in that four or five place where we feel um, time poor, it feels, our schedules feel unrelenting, we're stressed out, our joy is in danger, our hearts are being hijacked, and, um, and we talked about how it can steal your soul last time. So this is one of the things that DeYoung points out that helps give us some context. We have more opportunities available to us, he says, than any other time in history. Um, we can travel cheaply. We have tiny little devices that we carry around that make us feel all-knowing, or at least we kind of want to think we can be. We can access the internet from anywhere. No longer do we even need to wrestle with being curious so much because we can just Google it. Um, and we, because we can do so much, we do do so much. Um, so he says there are two realities of the modern, urbanized, globalized Western world. He's specific that he's speaking to us that most everyone else in human history could not fathom our complexity and our opportunity. So we even have two separate Try not to be weird. <laughs> so in looking at, um, I guess, last week, um, just very briefly, some of the key points here um, is that 
the act of being busy can be a healthy or unhealthy um, thing for us, depending on the context. So DeYoung talks about or is inviting us to reappraise our current priorities to reduce unnecessary busyness and to live a life filled with joy. Um, we ended last week by discussing the ways that busyness may have or has impacted your life, affecting your ability to prioritize and to manage daily tasks effectively. Um, we also looked at the three, um, so as we're kind of transitioning this week to looking at the three diagnostics of being busy, um, according to DeYoung, we invite you to reflect on how being constantly busy has changed you and your interactions and relationships with God, with self, and others. So society's glorification of busyness um, is a marker of success or importance. We highly, deeply value um, the aspects of being busy um, because of our cultural expectations um, that we should always be productive, whether it's in our personal or professional lives. Um, as a little side note here, we at the Bishop household have a thing on Saturdays that was instituted about 20 years ago called Productive Saturdays. I don't know if anyone else has Productive Saturdays, but we, we have Productive Saturdays at our house on um, Saturdays, of course. So, but it can also symbolize that being driven and hardworking is what's gonna lead you to be successful. And it can also symbolize some level of importance and status as in being validated, uh, being recognized by others. I said last week that being in graduate school, one of the things that people oftentimes ask me was like, how do you do all these things? How do you work and go to school, have a family? And, you know, there was a sense of pride that, for me in that. Um, so, and in fact, it was validating too. So, in short, from last week, our culture values um, overcommitment. Um, it values taking on multiple responsibilities to demonstrate um, our ambition and dedication. If you're not overwhelmed, if you're not stressed out, you must not be doing something right. Yeah. So one of the reasons that the Education Committee asked us to teach this class together is because of the impact that our busy schedules has on our family. And so um, the hope was that we could speak to that as well as a couple. Um, so think for a minute about um, how busyness was maybe modeled for you, or maybe think about what you saw in your family of origin, um, your parents, grandparents, that kind of instilled in you a principle, a mode of operation for how you handle work and busyness. Um, so, did any of you have parents or grandparents who grew up in the, through the Great Depression or grew up in a farming culture? Um, my father um, lived through both, actually. And so it became his, sort of his life's principle to um, never farm. He actually uh, said that he didn't want to be in the, in the, in the uh, will to inherit any of the land. And he wanted to work in such a way that would guarantee security for his family. Because, you know, with farming, they experienced a good bit of feast and famine. And uh, so he spent his life working um, 
it was one of the things that was very admirable about him and also kind of sad to reflect on because I'm not sure that he ever was able to really feel like he had arrived. Um, but that was kind of, so think about how that shaped him. Think about what shapes you from your family that you grow up in around the idea of work and busyness. He stayed, my dad stayed really, really busy. And I, I wonder, I don't think he ever accomplished or felt accomplished in terms of wanting that security. Um, so as we start to identify our own operating principles, let's look at the first three diagnostic criteria. All right, so the first one. The first one is we are beset with many manifestations of pride. These are the, called the killer peas up here. Um, so I searched for self-help books, self-help books, in the search bar on Amazon, and I got 60,000 books that popped up. And then I searched um, productivity, and I got 10,000. And then I searched time management, and I got 20. Um, so that's what, 90,000 books that came up around those issues. Um, as believers, we know that transforming our view of our time and our productivity is not as simple as learning new skills, mastering our schedule. And we try it. And if you're self-employed, I think that's probably an extra. I'm, I'm like, hi, Danielle. She's with the, uh, the, the struggle to manage your schedule feels like a whole beast, especially when you're self-employed, I think. But we're not, so we, what we know is that the issue is much deeper than mastering your schedule. It is in our hearts. We know that something's not right with us, that we're not the way we're supposed to be, and that the stress we carry is at least in some part self-induced. We, we know that. So we start by looking at our hearts and we look at ways that pride tends to manifest itself in us. This is the first criteria to consider. And DeYoung gives us 12 examples of how pride enters in. I love that he was able to use alliteration. I'm always impressed when somebody can do that. Um, so let's just talk about a few of those. He says that pride is subtle shape-shifting. That beyond being a servant, something we can struggle with is putting an unhealthy emphasis on meeting other people's expectations or striving for other people's approval. And so, of course, that keeps us busy, not just in terms of our schedule, but if the operating principle of our heart is to garner appreciation and to prioritize meeting other people's needs, what it means that we're busy intellectually, cognitively, we can be consumed with what other people are wanting or expecting. Mind reading, become consumed with that. And then emotionally, there's a great deal of anxiety and fear that comes with that orientation toward needing other people's approval and acceptance. And so then we end up putting our sense of security, our sense of righteousness in constant approval seeking. While Philippians 2 tells us do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. We have to ask for wisdom for God to protect us from confusing serving others with our own ambition to get glory for ourselves. Another, way he, another thing he mentions here is our performance. Um, I was reminded this week that, nope, different point. I'll come back to that. There's a phenomenon called self-enhancement bias. Have y'all ever heard of this? So interesting. You can't hear me. Okay. I can move it up even more. 
Is that any better? So self-enhancement bias says that we have a tendency to estimate ourselves to be better above average at what we do than everybody else. And think about it. I certainly see that in myself. Um, but what that means, though, is that we tend to take the approach that if I don't do this, no one else will. I served on the PTO way longer than I should have for that very reason. Because I thought, if I don't manage the hospitality committee, no one else will. And by the end, I hated it. You're only dispensable. This is what DeYoung says. It hurt my feelings. You're only dispensable until you say no. You're only indispensable until you say no. If my value is tied to my performance and I find out that I'm actually replaceable or that I'm actually just average, that's pretty scary. That's a lot at stake to risk setting some boundaries or prioritizing your time differently if what you put your value in is your performance. Many of us feel proud because we enjoy the pity that comes with uh, the, the self-sacrificing heroic responsibilities that we carry every day. I don't know how you do it all. Maybe we look to power to be known or recognized, calling the shots in the hopes of avoiding discomfort. Or we try to accumulate possessions because, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? What about perfectionism? Uh, that's the one I was reminded about this week. Our friend Brene Brown calls perfectionism the 20-ton shield because really we're hiding what we're hiding behind our perfectly executed responsibilities is a deep sense of shame that if I don't, if you really knew me, you would find me to be unlovable, unworthy, or broken. And so I'm going to strive to be perfect so that you don't get to see that. That kind of misses the, the point of the gospel too, doesn't it? So you can't serve other people without giving your time. So how can we tell when we're busy to ask, uh, to, to mask pride or shame? We can ask this, am I, trying, am I doing this or am I wanting to do this because I want to do good or I want to make myself look good? And I confess to you that I can never answer totally in one uh, realm or the other. Generally, my motives are kind of mixed. It's a good question to ask yourself. Um, and it's more complex than that, and we need wisdom. James 1.5 is, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give it generously to all who ask. Pride lies in us. It's an emotional weapon. It tells us there's no distinction between who we are and what we do, um, and it forgets the truth that our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. It tells us that our acceptance is not based on Jesus' work but our own. So it's a place where we need a light to shine, don't we? One of the, um, the greatest ways to have this addressed is to be living in a community, and even better to be living in a confessional community. Being known originates in the heart of God. Think about the ways that he has made himself known and continues to make himself known throughout all of creation, all of history. For us, pride, like shame and fear, kind of turns us in on ourselves and we want to hide. Healing happens so often within that community, within confessional community, where we're honest with other believers and we get to hear people speak truth to us and we get our, have our faulty beliefs challenged 
And then we can find some joy in laying down some of these protections, like the killer peas. And so before we transition to the next um, piece, I wanted to just kind of pause for a moment. Um, we've said a lot, or Denise said a lot in that um, previous um, comments that she made. What are you guys thinking? Like when you hear um, shame and you hear guilt as being potential motivators mixed with genuine like God-driven motivation to, to do good, um, what effect does that have on you? Check, check, check. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that honesty. That one's coming. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things that strikes me about um, this particular point is that if you're not striving for perfection and if you're not driven by motivation to please others or to have others give you some type of accolade and you accept the fact that if I am open with people and um, with those that are important to me in my life and honest in terms of the feedback that I give other people when they ask for it, where's the hurt in that? They can't use that against you in any kind of way. If you're known and if you tell your secrets and if you confess, they can't use that against you because it's already known. That's the point, I think, to um, this particular slide for me is to not be busy, to get to the point in my life where I'm not just saying yes to everything, which we're about to look at. It's learning to say no to a lot of things. Not because I can't do them, but should I do them? So as we turn our attention now. It's easier said than done, isn't it? Hey, I think if you. As we start a discussion about the terror of total obligation, I want to invite you, I want to invite us to consider this question. What do I physically experience and think to myself when I say no to um, this is what good Christians do kinds of opportunities, or any opportunity for that matter? What is it? What does it feel like inside when you say no to an opportunity that someone presents to you, especially if it's like a ministry opportunity? Guilt. A little, a little bit of like low-level guilt maybe, maybe a lot of guilt, maybe some shame, maybe a, little, maybe a little bit of both, or maybe like, man, I really would like to do that. But... So many of us here experience this pull to do more because we sincerely believe um, that doing more is being obedient to God. Think about that for a moment. If I do more because they're good things and Christians are called to do good things, to interact with the culture in such a way as to transform it, shouldn't I be doing those things? So when it comes to causes and good deeds, does more or disobey is not the best 
thing that we can say. So if I don't obey, then I am <coughs> sinning. But if I obey, I'm being obedient. Is that the only two categories that we, that we have? Is it possible that God isn't asking me or you or anyone else in this room to do more things even if they are really great things to do? I can do lots of things, but that doesn't necessarily mean because I can do them that I should do them or ought to do them. So DeYoung shares several um, thoughts that freed him from the weight of total obligation. Um, I, I've got two of them that I think that were pretty salient to me, um, and then there are a few others that Denise added to this. So for one, I am not the Christ. Basically, in this short little paragraph, DeYoung is saying that if you buy into this idea that you're the one that can save, fill in the blank, or be that person, you're probably overcommitted. You're probably not the only one that can do that thing. So recognizing that I am not the Messiah, I'm not Christ, I don't, I'm not the one that's going to be the Savior. The other is, um, Jesus didn't do it all. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't accomplish everything that he set out to do. He obviously did, and he did that in the cross. So please hear me. I'm not saying that, that Christ's work on our hearts and giving us new hearts isn't effectual. It, it, it is. What I mean by this, and I think DeYoung says this too, is that Jesus didn't do everything. He didn't heal every person that came to him. In fact, in the... Um, in, the Gospel of Mark, he actually turned away several people, or people, walked away from a crowd. So, um, not caring about evil or injustice in the world is not an option for Christians. I think we would all agree with that, right? Um, <clears throat> but we don't, but we can't do something about everything, though. It sounds pretty obvious to most of us, but... Um, we do carry that sense of guilt, shame, obligation when it comes to um, feeling uh, the frequently compelled to take some kind of action, especially if it's an injustice. So as a part of Christ's church, the body, we have different gifts. We know this. And DeYoung says that we have to be okay with other Christians doing certain things that we're not doing. Maybe they're better at it. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they just have more time to do that. Um, I would also add that um, we also should be careful not to let Christian comparison um, motivate us towards um, inactivity, activity, whatever. There's a whole thing in social psychology called the social comparison theory, which is a very interesting theory. Um, basically says that we have a natural inclination or tendency to compare ourselves to others you're going to do it instinctively without even realizing that you're doing it. And there's two main ways that we do it. One is called an upward social comparison, and the other one is a downward social comparison. So the upward social comparison is when you look at yourself and you go, man, I really want to learn what that person does. I think I, I, think I can do that. And so maybe this person's a lawyer, a doctor, or a successful business owner and so like you aspire to be like that that's an upward comparison I can do that. I'm gonna go learn that 
A downward comparison is looking at someone and going, man, I'm really, I'm really better at this than, than that person is. I can do this way better, and I know it. So social comparison is a thing that we all do. When we really scale it down, we're talking about motivation. What is motivating the comparison? Is it I'm not measuring up to a standard that I should be, and therefore the comparison is I need to change. I need to do something that helps um, measure up or fulfill this, you know, um, you know, like if I never came to church, but then I showed up just to teach Sunday school, many of you would go, that's eh, not quite right. But I digressed, I'm sorry. Okay, so when it comes to prayer, many of us would obviously say we should pray more. I don't think there's a person in here that would say I shouldn't pray more. But we can't always do that. But what we can do is in the moment when someone says, hey, will you pray for me? Or when you, on the Slack channel for us church officers um, and staff members, when we see something on there and there's a prayer request, we can obviously go, okay, look, I'm going to take a few minutes to pray for this right now. That's appropriate. So as we kind of transition into the next... Let me make a point real quick. Can I do that? I'm going to make a point real quick. So, uh, thinking about what Rob said, I think you're about to tell us to do nothing rather than thinking about this in terms of action points. Think about it in terms of motivation. That may help clarify a little bit as we're talking. So, if you're listening and thinking, I need to do more, I need to do less to be acceptable, that's not, that's not where uh, DeYoung has taken us. Uh, where he's taken us is consider the motivations of your heart. Are you responding out of pride or shame? Or are you motivated by to, even to serve by guilt or some kind of burdening sense of obligation that is in a lot of ways more about some sense of inadequacy, basically, I think that's where it comes from, that we carry. And so, of course, as we are given gifts, as, we, as the fruit of the Spirit is brought alive and matured in us, we are going to take action out of that. We are called to do that. So maybe that would help. Think about it in terms of motivation. Does that help? All right. Any comments or questions before we go to the next slide? That's where you're going, right? Yeah, I don't think yeah. it's the next slide. Yeah, okay. It's the next I'm, I'm still going to sit some more. So. Anyone? <clears throat> okay, so mission creep. This is where um, we can't serve others without setting some kind of priorities. Um, I really appreciate <laughs> this particular chapter um, because in our culture, um, it is so terribly easy to become distracted and unfocused by many wonderful and great opportunities and the things around us. Um, staying focused and sustaining attention are difficult tasks even for neurotypical people here. Yet in Mark um, chapter one, um, towards the end in verse 35, um, records an interesting moment in the life of Jesus. Jesus understood that all the good things 
he could do weren't the things he ought to do. So this is a very interesting passage. I don't know um, if you can recall this, but this, this is where they had been um, casting out demons, or Jesus has been casting out demons, he's been healing people, he's been doing all these things. In the Gospel of Mark, something you have to know about it is that um, it's action-oriented. Um, the, the word like immediately, or, or kind of like, and now this, and now this, and next, and that. And it, it's like Jesus is all over the place. He's doing all of these things, so it's very action-oriented. Um, and then there's this moment right at the start where it says, you know, Jesus got up super early, still dark, and he left, and he went off to pray. And most of us were like, that tells me I should do a quiet time every day, and I don't do it, but Jesus did it, so I should do it. That's not necessarily what it's arguing or advocating there, although quiet times are good <clears throat> things. As much as it's like, when the disciples came to him, they are like, man, where you been? We've been looking for you everywhere. We got stuff to do. And it's already daylight, so let's go. And then Jesus says, you know, actually, we're going to leave this area. We're going to go somewhere else. Think about that for a moment. So they had just been in the area doing all these wonderful things, or Jesus had been. And now he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to leave this area. We're going to go somewhere else. Like, really? Like, shouldn't we stay here and keep doing this? And Jesus is like, no, we got to go. So the whole point in this particular passage is to consider that some of the things that could be motivating us are considering questions like, what drives you to do the things that you do? Is it unrelenting expectations, fear of disappointing others, keeping the peace at home, making your boss happy, looking good before others, um, or some unrealistic obligation that might be going on in your life. Jesus was able to stay on mission because he understood his mission and he wasn't driven by the needs of others, but rather by his God-given mission. He knew his priorities and didn't allow the many temptations of the busy life to distract him. So, Take a few moments and ask yourself this. Is it possible that God isn't asking me or you to do more things even if they are really great things? If the answer is yes, then how do we avoid becoming um, distracted by the things that are around us, even if they're good things? Even if it's ministry-oriented. I turned down several ministry-oriented things in our church because I just didn't think that I had time to devote to them. I felt a little bit of guilt and a little bit of shame for having to say no, but I knew that that was the right thing to do. So DeYoung gives us three truths. Here they are. One, I must set priorities because I can't do it all. Seems pretty obvious, right? You can't do it all, so you gotta set priorities. Jesus set a priority. His priority was to do whatever his father gave him the mission to do and to obey him above all. And that's what he did. If that included um, signs, healing people, preaching in synagogue, it, it, teaching the disciples, praying, that's what he did. But he was still limited, right? I mean, he still was limited physically. He still had to sleep. He still had to eat. He still had to do the basic same human needs that we have. And so, because of that, he realized he couldn't do everything 
He needed to recharge. Secondly, I must set priorities if I am to serve others effectively. So if you want to meet the needs of other people and the needs of like your work obligations, you've got to set priorities. And that works on two fronts. One, these are the things I can do. These are the things I won't do. Did you want to make a comment? Oh, I can't, yeah. So, um, let me put my phone down and look at my notes here. Yeah, so Jesus knew the difference between the urgent and the important. I think that's kind of what this kind of boils down to uh, with, in terms of setting priorities. So it doesn't necessarily mean, though, like serving people effectively doesn't necessarily mean efficiently. Those are two different things. And that's a conversation we have often even between us because Pete really values efficiency. Um, and there are times when, it, yeah, <laughs> he really values efficiency. So when we are caring for other people, it's often very inefficient. Um, it often requires, it takes a whole lot of time and patience. And that goes anywhere from ministry outside the home to ministry inside the home. Caring for the people that we live with is often super inefficient. Um, and so Jesus modeled saying no to good things in order to say yes to the important things. And that's the thing that I think prayer can help us have some discernment about. And so the third point is that I must allow others to set their own priorities. This is really hard for people. Um, when you set a boundary to say, no, I'm not gonna do this, it, it, it offends most people. Uh, most people don't like that. And, and you might, might even get a sense of like, why not? You know, well, why are you so busy? What are you doing? Why can't you do these things? And this is where Christian liberty comes in, your Christian conscience. Allow other people to set the priority for themselves. Don't be the one that sets them for that person. Now, I'm not talking about employer-employee kind of relationships. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you go up to a friend or a family member or a spouse and you're like, I need you to do this. And they say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. Well, why can't you? That's not the right response. Let them have their priorities. Let them set their priorities for themselves in that regard. Hmm. What are you laughing at? Mary Catherine's laughing uh, at me because <laughs> that, I don't ever do that. That's why she was laughing at me. Well, I underlined and put a star by this quote in the book. Don't begrudge people the time we're so desperately fighting for. Unless we're God, none of us deserves to be the priority for everyone else all the time. If you struggle with sometimes being a little bit demanding, it's helpful to know. It's helpful to remember that. All right, so we have a few minutes left. Questions and comments. And I would ask, too, if anybody wants to talk about how they've seen themselves in these three diagnostic criteria that we've talked about today. That's so great. I hope everybody heard her. Did y'all all hear that? I could not repeat it as well as Grace Ann said it. That's great. Rob? I get paid to do that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Helping other people perceive what their priorities are. So like if someone's not really aware, how do I come alongside them and help clar bring clarity? Is that what you're asking? 
I think there's a place for that. I mean, certainly um, we're called to admonish one another, um, to support one another. Um, and so I think there are times when we can do that for um, each of us. You know, I, I, I have a few people in my life where um, I give them full reign and permission to confront me on things if, I, if I'm not um, prioritizing the right things. Denise being one of those people. And I, I think in terms of how we do that might look a little different in terms of our motivation for those things, but I def, I, obviously, yes, we can help set priorities or, or help people realize their priorities and maybe realign them to be more um, in line with what the Bible says. I think, it's to, I think it's totally necessary to be able to do that. And I think that kind of brings to light the importance of community, too. That if you're not opening yourself up to other people to be able to speak into your life, then they're not going to be able to help you have insight in places that you don't have it, maybe. Um, but I think that's one of the ways we function as a body of Christ, is that we're able to speak truth to each other and bring clarity. Vicki, what were you going to say? Hmm. She said that she was invited to do a couple of things in the church, and Grace Ann reminded her of, that, of the importance of gifting, knowing your gifts, right? Uh, oh, gotcha. I see. Okay. So just invite people and give them a chance to see if they're... It worked. Yeah. Just invite people. And then the, the other part of that, too, is be willing to show up. That's yeah, right. That's good. So it looks like it's 1031 and in the time of being efficient. Um, if there aren't any other comments or questions that you guys have, um, we can go ahead and end here. And in preparation for next week, we're going to look at, uh, is it three more? Social media is coming up next week. Three more diagnostic questions um, that DeYoung deals with um, and so I invite you to come back for for that and also to uh, maybe over the course of the week just consider if I started changing things in my life realigning priorities and being less busy what would I cut out okay let's pray Heavenly Father thank you so much for the work that you have accomplished through your son and that it is effectual even to this day and forever will be. As we consider your word and its impact on our lives, as we consider the calling to which you have called us, will you make it clear to each of us here? Will you give us wisdom so that we can rightly discern your will for us? And maybe consider the things that Yes, we can do them, we're good at them, we can accomplish those things, but are those the things that we should be doing?